And we indeed have been condemned justly. For we are getting what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then the thief said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we ask you, as we always do, to join us here in this place this morning. And we trust that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words now be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Man, that gospel lesson hits you like a slap in the face, doesn't it? There we were, minding our own business, enjoying our summer and fall of ordinary time, listening to Jesus' teaching, hearing stories of his life, and then, bam, he's on the cross, right at the part of the passion story where we all would stand in silence. And it's so stark. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So how, how is it that we're here now? Isn't this a Palm Sunday reading or a Good Friday reading meant to be read in March or April after we've had all of Lent to get ready for it? And yes, we will read the Passion again in a few months, but today is Christ the King Sunday, the last Sunday of the church year before we start anew again next week in Advent. And this reading is chosen, I suspect, because of the placard that hung above Jesus' dying body. This is the King of the Jews. Now in America, we have an uneasy relationship with kings, don't we? Sort of one of our founding principles, huh? No king. I recently watched the really wonderful Paul Giamatti, John Adams show. And one of the really interesting things was the tension after Washington was elected president, the tension around what they were going to call him. It's even Adams himself, who had pushed as hard for independence as anyone, wanted a presidential title that conferred something like regal authority. His Excellency the President, he suggested. His Lordship the President. Even, I think, if I remember correctly, His Royal Highness the President. But Congress hated those ideas, and so did Washington. After all, they had just won a bloody revolution against someone who demanded that he be addressed by titles like that. And so Mr. President was all they were willing to accept, and it's all we use to this day. When we all voted the other week, for instance, we were basically repudiating the idea of a king. We went to the ballot box. We went as Americans telling our government what we want. We were exercising the right to self-governance that was so hard won by Adams and Washington and Jefferson and so many others. And as we exercise that right, it can be easy to forget that we do have a king. Now, I'm pretty sure that George III, king of England during the American Revolution, 
wouldn't have felt like the King Jesus of Luke's passion had much in common with him. Beaten, bloodied, executed, called a king, but only sarcastically? No, George would have wanted to describe himself in a very different way. Another really funny scene in that John Adams show was seeing Adams, after he's been appointed envoy to Great Britain, try to learn the ridiculous rules around approaching the King of England. Don't look him in the eyes. Come halfway into the room and bow. Then come another quarter of the way in and bow again. Lower. Don't ever show him your back. And so on. And that's how we Americans think of kings, right? Someone utterly disconnected from the common people. Much, I think, like Paul describes King Jesus in our other reading assigned for this morning from Colossians chapter 1. Now remember, as I read this, and we all heard it already, that Paul is describing that same Jesus that Luke described on the cross, bloodied and beaten. He is the image of the invisible God, writes Paul. The firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created. Things visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. This is how we think of kings. First, greatest, head, ruler, power. So we have these two competing images of King Jesus, both brought to the fore on Christ the King Sunday. We have the George III-style royal language of Colossians on the one hand, and we also have this really jarring and sarcastic king of the Jews image in Luke with Jesus tortured and forsaken, wearing a purple robe and a crown of thorns, dying a criminal's death outside the city walls. Today, I want to consider both of them. One at a time. First, the royal king of heaven, King Jesus, on his glorious throne. This world, we read, was spoken into existence through him. He is the perfect embodiment of the law of God. Indeed, he is God. In the beginning was the word, Jesus, and he was with God and he was God. That's John chapter 1. In John 14, Jesus tells his followers that if they love him, they will keep his commandments. But Jesus' commands, coming as they do directly from the holiness of God, require more than our rebellious hearts can give. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love your enemies at all times with all care. Don't look at a person with lust or anger or envy in your heart ever for any reason. And more, be perfect, he says, as your Father in heaven is perfect. How do we react to such a king? Actually, the American Revolution is a pretty good illustration here. America hated this kind of royal king. He made laws and we rebelled. He taxed our tea and we dumped it all in Boston Harbor. And this is the same relationship that we sinners have to the king of heaven, creator of the world. You may eat of any tree in the garden, he said. But do not eat of that one. And our response? A declaration of independence. (laughs) Don't tread on me, we said. And we have been trying to make that independence work ever since, to which the brokenness of this world attests. Now, I think there are two things that need to be said here in the face of what feels like an oppressive kingship. First, The first thing we need to say is that God's law is good. It is for our benefit. Unlike George's tea, we don't dump the commands of our God in the harbor. Because our heavenly king actually does have our best interests at heart. He does desire our flourishing. Though we believed it, the serpent was lying when he suggested to us that we could rule better, that we should be the ones who decide right from wrong. The truth is that God is good. He is right. He is true. So even though we acknowledge that the holiness of God is beyond our reach and reveals our sin, we do not reject it. No, indeed. Instead, we submit ourselves to it. We bend the knee to it. We acknowledge its righteousness and our sinfulness. We affirm, for instance, contrary to our heart's desires, that there is a God and we are not him. We can think of a hundred examples of this. We affirm, contrary to our heart's desires, that marriage is the lifelong union between one man and one woman. We affirm many other truths like this. The whole biblical witness, truths that identify us as sinful humans in light of the holiness of Almighty God. Even though these truths judge us, we protect them. We actually cherish them. We defend them even as they show us to be desperately broken sinners. And why? Because they show us our need for King Jesus dying on the cross for us. The second thing to say about God's law and the potential oppressiveness of his kingship is that God's law is God's word. And therefore, creative. 
God says, let there be light and light appears. His commandments, even as they show us our sin and force us to our knees, are at work shaping us. Christ the King demands a radical obedience. One that in our sin we are utterly unable to produce. And yet we are not without hope. We need not despair. For we are promised a Christ-likeness. We are told that the Holy Spirit will be at work in us, producing all of these things that seem impossible to achieve on their face. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, honor, purity, fidelity. This fruit will grow. We are promised. But how is this possible? How does it work? The only way that the radical obedience that Christ the King commands is possible is as the fruit of a resurrection. And that's where the other Christ the King, Christ the Savior on the cross, comes in. When they came to the place that is called the skull, They crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. The people stood by watching Jesus on the cross, but the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Christ the king is he who died for you, who was raised to new life for you. Indeed, raising you to new life in him, giving you a new heart that will bear the fruit of the kingdom. And so the message of Christ the King Sunday is that Jesus Christ is a king who wears two crowns, a glorious golden one as almighty king of heaven and earth, the king who demands and deserves obedience, the king we make every effort to obey, and... A blood-soaked, thorny crown as Savior of the world. Here's Paul in Colossians joining the two. He is the image of the invisible God. Firstborn of all creation, in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making 
peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus is, and make no mistake about this, Jesus is a king who asks for our obedience. Christ, the ruling king, asks us to love our enemies, to give away all we have. He asks us to follow him. He asks us for everything. These and the other requirements of Jesus are good and right and true, and we commit ourselves to this radical obedience. We read the scriptures. We pray. We ask the Holy Spirit to continue his reshaping work in our lives to bear his fruit in us. But as we serve Christ, the ruling king, we always remember Christ, the redeeming king, the resurrection root that brings forth this good fruit. The ruling king is a king who asks for things. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. The Redeemer King is a king who offers something. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. When it becomes clear that the sum of our deeds deserves the condemnation of a king who reigns in heaven, it is then that we turn desperately for a different kind of king. A king who is hanging on a cross. And there is in this king no condemnation at all. But, and this is the really good news, these are not actually two different kings. There are not two Jesuses. Jesus is both almighty king and redeemer king. He is both creator and justifier. The same God who gives the law, bad news, became one of us in Christ Jesus, good news, in order to bear the punishment that our transgression required. This means something truly radical, that God does not love you just the way you are. Rather, he recognizes the way that you are, unable to give what is required, and so he gives it in Jesus, that is, in himself, for you. And so we thieves hear good news. Today, you will be with me in paradise. The Almighty King is also the Redeemer King. His life in place of yours. His goodness in place of your sin. His Faithfulness in place of your unfaithfulness. The king of heaven and earth dying on a cross. A king on a cross for you. In the eyes of Christ, the ruling king, you have been condemned justly. But by the words and deeds of Christ, the Redeemer King, you will be with him today in paradise. And so today we worship Jesus, an almighty king, a king who has set a standard, a king who was there at the creation of the world, who hovered over the face of the deep before the sun and moon existed, 
A king in whom all things hold together and who is first in everything. King Jesus requires your obedience, your love, your faithfulness. Offer it to him joyfully. But this King Jesus is also a suffering servant. He is the friend of sinners. He wears a crown of thorns. And as you acknowledge your sin and cry out to him, he turns and looks at you and loves you. He says to you, even you, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Amen.